You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our Old Testament reading and sermon text is found in 1 Samuel chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul. All the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and buried them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So we come to the end of Saul and the end of First Samuel. Um, I want to pray for us, and then we will uh, jump into the text. So, Father, we come now and ask that you would teach us the hard lesson of Saul. We may not have to learn this hard lesson in our own lives and through our own experiences. God, keep us from presumptuousness. Keep us from pride. It keep us from the sin of envy and bitterness. God, make us a people who um, are rescued by you, are set at the foot of a tree, and find salvation there. In your name we pray, amen. The French philosopher, sociologist, it's hard to exactly say what exact, all the things he was. He was a brilliant man. My name is Rene Girard. Uh, made a a key observation late in his life. He studied the history of religion. Um, He studied the history of cultures and societies um, uh, all around the world over over, over many, many centuries. Um, And he he drew the observation that there was an intimate connection uh, between the first commandment and the tenth commandment. Um, That the first step... Uh, to the destruction and fall of any society, any culture, was the rejection of God, God as God, God as 
king, and that the sure sign of that and what that would look like in a society um, was envy, covetousness. Um, that arising in every society was this violent urge, this, um, uh, this, this hatred for one another um, that would divide societies and split families and destroy relationships. And ultimately, all of that could be tied back to the seed of covetousness and the seed of envy. And the seed of envy then was linked directly to a rejection of God as God. It's an incredible insight that he plays out again and again through mythology, through the history of different cultures and societies. Today we've come to the end of 1 Samuel and the end of Saul. And what we find in 1 Samuel 31 is that Saul's life ends in a a way that accords quite perfectly with the way he lived. His downfall in this battle lines up directly with the tragedy, the consuming, destructive, sinful tragedy that was Saul's life. So what we're going to do this morning is I want to look just closely at the narrative, draw out um, a couple of things to point out for us to see. And then I want to go back, and I told my wife this this morning, and she said, oh no, Um, we are going to track the whole book of Samuel. And just look at the story of Saul and his journey, his fall, the tragedy that is Saul's life. And then I want to take away from that one particular lesson um, to end with. So uh, 1 Samuel 31, uh, timeline-wise, lines up with everything that's unfolding in chapters 29 and 30. So chapter 29 and 30 uh, were the episodes in the, the TV series Samuel Um, in which we got to see what was going on with David and the Philistines, the Amalekites, and the Egyptian slave in the desert, um, and how God was blessing David, protecting David, providing a way for David um, as he then is taken out of the the space of being between a rock and a hard place, of either fighting Saul and Israel or turning against uh, the Philistines who had been kind to him, um, and then comes out of that place and finds that his wives and children, and all of his men's wives and children had been, and all of their goods had been taken from the city of Ziklag. Uh, um, While all of that is unfolding, chapter 31 is unfolding at the same time. The Philistines come, uh, the accounting of the battle here is very short. It lasts about one verse. Um, And the verse two, and the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, um, that, that is notable because of how prominent Jonathan's role was in the story. And he's um, been relatively silent. He's disappeared from the storyline um, over the last several chapters. And here he appears again um, for the last time, uh, simply being killed with Saul and his brothers in this battle with the Philistines. Um, Israel is routed. Um, and ultimately, uh, the Philistines kind of recognize uh, where Saul is. Um, and they come and press hard on that part of the battle line um, and start firing arrows. And uh, several arrows struck, strike Saul, and he's badly wounded. He turns to his armor bearer, asking to be struck down by his armor bearer so his, his body can't be, um, he can't be captured or mistreated by the Philistines. His armor bearer is afraid, refuses to do it. And so Saul falls on his own sword and dies. 
um, once he dies, we have this interesting, um, we're going to see this next week in 2 Samuel. Um, a story comes up about an Amalekite comes to David and says, I struck down Saul. Um, and so there's a conflict in the text, apparent conflict in the text in chapters 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel 1. If you remember, these books are meant to be held together. Um, so something other than uh, um, the author of um, First and Second Samuel uh, kind of forgetting who killed Saul uh, is taking place. He's telling us something about the Amalekites, which we'll get to next week. Um, it's likely that, uh, not likely, it's almost certain um, that the account in First Samuel 31 is what actually happened and the Amalekite is actually telling a lie um, when he comes to David thinking he can win David's favor. Um, we're going to see in the first couple chapters of Second Samuel, um, David is making some very savvy and intentional political moves um, in the first couple chapters of Second Samuel, um, one of which is to very publicly demonstrate his loyalty to Saul and his family. Um, so Saul is dead. All of his three sons are dead. His armor bearer is dead. Um, and all of his men who've been following him, who we've, we've kind of gotten glimpses of, uh, throughout First Samuel, First Samuel, they're dead as well. Um, the the cities, um, the the towns surrounding kind of this area, uh, see that the Philistines have kind of routed Israel's army. These were all cities regained by Saul at the beginning of his reign. Um, those people then flee those cities, and the Philistines come and begin to inhabit them again. I and mean, so we see the full uh, kind of a full circle taking place as. The cities that Saul and Samuel conquered, um, kind of kicking the Philistines out of Israeli land, of Israel's land, um, are now retaken by the Philistines. Philistines come upon Saul's body the next day. They behead him. Uh, They send his head as a a trophy uh, to the temple of one of their gods. They take his body and his son's bodies and they hang them on the wall of a city. According to Deuteronomy, hanging outside on the walls of a city is a sign of the curse of God. Um, the men of Jabesh Gilead, if you'll remember from Jabesh Gilead, this was uh, the very first city that Saul rescued um, way back, oh, we'll get to it in a second, but um, way back from Nahash. Uh, those men come in the night, they steal away Saul, Saul's body the bodies of his sons, um, they take him uh, to a tamarisk tree in Jabesh, they burn his body, they take his bones, and they bury them under a tamarisk tree. The last time we saw a tamarisk tree, the only time, in fact, we see a tamarisk tree um, in the book of Samuel is when Samuel is standing under a tamarisk tree with his spear, uh, slandering David, um, uh, acting a little bit crazy, convinc- um, accusing all of the men around him of conspiring with David. And there also he ordered the massacre of the priests of Nob. And so we see Saul's end. It was a self-inflicted end. And that is the story of Saul's life. A self-inflicted destruction, consumption, and end. And there's much to learn from Saul. And it's actually vitally important that we learn the lessons, the weighty and heavy, frankly, lessons of Saul's life so we might avoid them in our own lives. So let's look at Saul's life 
Saul first appears in 1 Samuel 9. Um, it's a good beginning. In fact, all of these early chapters, as Saul is introduced to us, um, is a good, positive beginning. Saul is out honoring his father, um, looking for his father's oxen, which are lost. Um, and there, uh, Samuel um, comes across Saul um, and names him as the coming king. He will be the king um, that will unite the tribes of Israel. He's the king that God has chosen. Um, he's then anointed as king and proclaimed as king in 1 Samuel 10. Um, and we have even here an odd beginning, but a good beginning. Remember, um, his name is drawn. They, they go through the whole uh, choosing of lots and it lands on Saul. And everybody's looking for Saul. And Saul is not pining to become king of Israel. He's not looking for um, a whole lot of power. He's off hiding, if you remember, in the baggage, which is a weird place to hide. But he's hiding with the baggage, so that's where he was. Um, he then is proclaimed as king. Um, and then in 1 Samuel 11, Nahash, you remember this is the first appearance of a, 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 a central theme, a thread that runs the whole book of Samuel. Uh, Nahash is the serpent king of the Amalekites. Um, and uh, running throughout the theme, uh, running, the theme running throughout uh, 1 Samuel is the theme of a serpent. There's always a serpent appearing in the narrative um, in the king's job um, as a uh, re- restored Adam in the garden is to kill the serpent, to kill um, the serpent that has invaded the garden. And so Samuel, or Saul, filled with the spirit of God, the text tells us, anointed by the spirit of God, um, the text has already laid out for us by Samuel, but not now filled with the spirit, is enraged, calls the people of Israel together um, to wage war against Nahash, the serpent, and he destroys him. It is a good beginning. And those who'd been kind of speaking out of the side of their mouth, bad-mouthing who Saul was, um, he shows them mercy, um, keeps the people from going after and uh, and killing those men. Um, And now and there at the end of 1 Samuel 11, you have the kingdom of Israel united as one kingdom under one king. And it appears like everything from Hannah's song at the very beginning of Samuel is happening and it's all going swimmingly. Um, Through Samuel and through Saul, they conquer the cities uh, that had been taken by the Philistines. Those, uh, the ark has been returned to Israel. There's now a king on a throne ruling all of Israel who's conquered the serpent and everything appears to be going great until we get to chapters 13, 14, and 15. And here we have the beginning, but it did not need to be the end. But we have the beginning of the end for Saul. In three chapters, we have three distinct sins. Sins that ultimately leave Saul um, with the Lord having, de- his spirit having departed from Saul. Remember in 1 Samuel 13, he's waiting for Samuel to come to offer worship before going to battle. The people are getting restless. The army they're going to fight is large. Um, and rather than waiting on Samuel, he presumes as king uh, to offer worship to God in place of Samuel, who would be acting as priest and prophet. And so we have an unlawful sacrifice, which is condemned in 1 Samuel 13. Second, his second sin 
is in 1 Samuel 14, this tyrannical leadership forbidding his men from eating, from drinking, um, even to the point of uh, um, swearing that he will kill his own son, a nobleman named Jonathan, um, for eating honey when he hadn't even heard the command from Saul. We have a tyrannical leadership, a leadership that flies in the face of God's law, um, muzzling the ox while it, while it goes to the field. And so we have tyrannical leadership in 1 Samuel 14. And in the third sin, and the one that ultimately led to the Spirit of God departing from Saul and, and saying that he was going to depart from Saul's house, and God had ordered Saul to kill all of the Amalekites, to, 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 um, to carry out the ban, the judgment of God, um, the final judgment of God on the Amalekites. In 1 Samuel 15, um, Saul spared the king, spared the best of the livestock, disobeying the word of the Lord. And so it ends with Samuel declaring that the spirit of God would no longer reside with Saul. The spirit of God's leadership anointing him to lead, um, anointing his house for leadership and to reign in Israel departs from Saul. But then a grace comes. A grace that I think we often overlook and perhaps have overlooked in the story of Saul with the coming of David. Samuel goes, anoints David, and then David is sent to Saul's house, the one possessing the spirit of God now, the spirit of God to reign and to rule over the people of God, um, is sent into Saul's house to be a comfort to him, to be a mercy to him, to be a grace to him. So while the spirit of God had departed from Saul, and left Saul's house and now landed on and been given to David. David then, in the providence of God, is brought into Saul's house. And so Saul could no longer possess the spirit of God. Saul could no longer be anointed for leadership and to reign over the people of God with the spirit of God. Um, But God didn't put his spirit on the other side of the planet. He put him right there in his throne room. Right there playing the harp or the banjo. I like to think banjo. Um, bringing comfort, bringing grace, bringing mercy to Saul. Then David defeats Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. And the roots of Saul's three sins take hold as a treacherous, at least to Saul's ears, song erupts. A song that gets repeated multiple times throughout the book of 1 Samuel. Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. This song was really popular. It was popular not just um, among the lady folk as they would go through the cities. Um, It was also the Philistines knew this song. This was a worldwide international number one hit. This song is being sung and the text of Samuel, 1 Samuel tells us that Saul is bothered by this. Troubled, annoyed by this. Here is a man that God's spirit rests on, David, who's given to Saul's house as a comfort, as a blessing, as a grace. Here is the man possessing the spirit of the Lord, filled with the spirit of the Lord. I'm going and fighting in Saul's place, Goliath, 
You remember Goliath is cast and described in serpent, dragon-like terms for us in 1 Samuel 17. Wearing scaly armor and carrying a spear. A spear becoming a sign of the serpent in 1 Samuel. While Saul, the spirit has been removed from Saul and it rests now on David, God keeps bringing David alongside Saul, I believe is a grace, as a mercy. To defeat the serpent, when Saul no longer possessed the spirit and could do so. When Saul's been driven crazy with anxiety and fear, to bring a comforting word and song to his court, And then in 1 Samuel 18, we have this troubled listening to this song gives way to envy. He no longer sees David as a blessing. He doesn't see David as a grace from God, um, even in the the face of his sin. He sees David as a threat. He sees um, David possessing something that he no longer possesses, that David is blessed by God, David is um, victorious in battle, the people love David, um, and he resents David, he hates that David has the Spirit of God, and that envy gives way in chapter 19 to Saul himself becoming a serpent and taking up Goliath's spear and trying to kill David, trying to pin him to the wall. And so envy, in chapter 18, quickly gives way to bitterness, in chapter 19. And what does bitterness and envy do? It becomes paranoid, it becomes murderous, um, giving rise in, in chapter 22 to Saul slandering David, accusing his loyal men of being disloyal, and murdering all of the priests of Nob. It becomes obsessed with destroying what was a grace and a blessing. And then Saul wastes his reign, pursuing the blessing, um, pursuing the destruction of the blessing of God, trying to kill David, trying to destroy David, trying to murder David, and murdering all people around, uh, seeking to murder everyone around David. And meanwhile, the Philistines are growing stronger and stronger and stronger, strong enough eventually to show up in chapter 31 and destroy Saul and take back all the cities God had given back to Israel under the reign of Saul. So what do we see? We see Saul earnestly pursuing his own destruction. Just as David refused to run Saul through, to kill him, even though he had two opportunities at least to do so. Saul's armor bearer refuses to run Saul through. And so Saul destroys himself. Saul rejects the word of God, refusing to obey God when God commands him. He rejects the promises of God, by presuming upon his station. So we have pride. And finally, Saul is consumed by envy. And that envy plants the seeds of bitterness that poisons the rest of Saul's life. And in the end, he dies by his own hand, 
just as his rule was damned by his own sin, his own, his own envy, and his own bitterness. And this is exactly how bitterness and envy work. We see in someone, usually someone close to us, the blessings of God, blessings that we don't have, and turning away from the blessings and the kindness of God that he has given us, we turn and all of our attention becomes the blessings given to someone else. The kindnesses of God given to someone else. The vocation given to someone else. The mercy given to someone else. And that envy soon gives way to bitterness. They don't deserve to have that. I deserve to have that. Why can't I have that? And it takes root and it begins to poison everything. So it's the blessings of God, the kindnesses of God that are given to you are not seen as kindnesses and blessings. Your, your, your life becomes absent of gratitude and feel, filled simply with an obsession over um, the destruction of someone else or something else. And our society is rife with it. It is the roots of feminism. It's the roots of our politics and our economy. Our entire economy is built on covetousness. Do you know this? Like every commercial shown during college football on a Saturday, if you happen to spend an excessive number of hours watching it, is filled with, look what you could have. Look what your life could be. Look how many people will like you. Look how convenient your life would be if you had what this person has. Marriages are torn apart and shattered. Relationships, close relationships, friendships are destroyed. And at the root of them is envy. And here's the, here's the trick. You usually can't tell it's envy. Bitterness stays hidden. It gets covered over with all manner of justifications. For Saul, it was the idea um, that, that David was treasonous, that David was out to get him, that David was out to take from him um, what was his. When it's demonstrated in the text over and over and over again, David refused to take what had been given to Saul. But in Saul's mind, his pursuit of, his murderous pursuit of David was justified because David was a traitor. His massacring of the priests of Nob was justified because they were treasonous. His accusations of his closest and most loyal men were justified because they were clearly in cahoots with David, helping him commit treason. Driving all of it is bitterness. 
And the roots of that bitterness is envy. And this is what consumed Saul and ultimately killed Saul and ultimately reversed all the gains seen through 1 Samuel. What's fascinating about 1 Samuel is we are ending right where we began. (laughs) It's exhausting, frankly, as a preacher. You think the historical narrative's building, we're all building up to this grand arrival of David and everything's going to be great and Saul was preparatory and Samuel was preparatory and Eli was preparatory and it was all just building up and to the right, just slowly, maybe a couple downturns. But in reality, the state of Israel here at the end of 1 Samuel is exactly the state of Israel at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Do not underestimate the power, the destructive power of envy. Do not underestimate the self-destructive power of bitterness. Saul had committed three sins. The anointing of God's spirit to lead and to rule and to reign and to conquer his enemies was removed from him. But even there was an opportunity for grace and repentance. Even there is David, possessor of God's spirit, in Saul's throne room, on Saul's battlefield, conquering serpents, when Saul could no longer conquer serpents. Flip over with me to James chapter four. James gives us something remarkable. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Why is that remarkable? Because so often we, we, we pretend like quarrels and bitterness and disagreements and anger among brothers and sisters is this grand mystery. But James, right off the bat, seems rather sweeping, tells us where they come from. It's not this that your passions or your desires are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. You envy and cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Nothing destroys a church like envy. Because envy gives way to bitterness and bitterness poisons everything. Nothing destroys a family like envy. Because envy gives way to bitterness and bitterness poisons everything. The progression of Samuel or the progression of Saul in 1 Samuel 
Saul first rejects the Lord's word. Then he rejects the blessing and grace of God. And where does he find himself? But he becomes the serpent. He was appointed and anointed to defeat. He becomes the one carrying the spear. He becomes the one fighting against the Lord's spirit. He becomes the one murderously poisoning and seeking to kill and destroy the priests of God, the worshipers of God. And yet even then, it's remarkable, looking at the story of Saul, um, what does David take the second time that David has an opportunity to kill Saul? He takes his spear. He takes his spear and then shouting to him, shows him exactly what he's become. Shows him the foolishness of the, of the men around him. Shows him the, 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 the blasphemy of pursuing and trying to kill David, the Lord's anointed. And shows him his own spear. Shows him his own serpent-like nature. Shows him um, that bitterness and envy is devouring him and destroying him. Envy and bitterness ultimately devour the blessings of God. They devour a life and they devour the fruit of that life that are the result of the blessings and the kindnesses of God. So brothers and sisters, hate envy. Go to war with it. Uproot bitterness everywhere you see it. Hold fast to the words of God, cling to the words of God, and then cling to the words of God, cling to the promises of God, um, and then in the light of the promises of God and the words of God and the grace of God, um, do the good thing in front of you and receive the kindness of God that he has given you. Don't look sideways. Don't look at that family and their level of wealth. Don't look at that family over there and and their apparent marriage. Don't look at um, the person across the street and see how nice their yard is. I would never do that, but some of you might. Like, Learn to to see the life that God has given you, the blessings that God has given you, and receive those gifts, and be grateful for those gifts, and be faithful to God, keeping his word, obeying his words, with what's directly in front of you. Stop looking sideways. But be filled with gratitude. Envy and bitterness are overcome with One thing, and one thing only, thanksgiving. To sit at your table this afternoon with your family, or with your friends, or maybe by yourself, and to not be thinking, well, I wonder what Brian's having for lunch today. He's so... Savvy, he probably got Chipotle. And all I have here is this peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It's not even good peanut butter. It's that like natural peanut butter that's dry and oily. No, like rejoice in your nasty, dry peanut butter and give thanks to God. 
Don't look at your career where it might be stuck and think, well, that guy, that guy keeps getting promoted. That guy keeps getting a raise. That guy, everything seems to be going well. Stop looking sideways. What has God given you here? Receive it and give thanks. Kids, in your class, there's that one popular kid. You know who she is. Everybody likes her. She gets all the right answers on the spelling test. And you don't. You're bad at spelling. You're terrible at spelling. It's okay. And people aren't as nice to you because they want to be around a good speller, not a bad speller. That stops eventually, I just warn you. Eventually, they don't really care if you're a good speller or not. But right now, wherever you are, maybe fifth grade, seventh grade, they still care about spelling and they want to hang out with the spellers. You're not a speller. When the spelling bee rolls around, you're the first one out every time. They always, and, and, and it's temptation in that moment to think those people are being cliquish, those people are being mean, those people don't like me, that person, she's doing this on purpose. Um, she probably cheats on her spelling test to constantly look sideways and say, why can't I have all those friends? Why can't I be that popular? Um, Why can't I um, get straight A's on my spelling test? Um, Instead, God's given me uh, just the inability to spell um, and he's made me not as cool as that other kid in my class. And then what begins to grow out of that envy is bitterness. You begin to come up with all kinds of reasons why that person, she, shouldn't have what you don't have. Don't. God, plead with you. What has God given you? God's given you the glorious challenge of learning to spell. Learning when it's an F and learning when it's a PH. God's given you the glorious challenge gift of not having to deal with all those people. You maybe have less people to deal with, (laughs) less friendships to manage. And God's given in the light of those gifts, good work to be done. I mean, think about how hard her life is. She doesn't have to study spelling. It's just easy. You, you know what to do when you go home. You can study spelling. She goes home and says, I don't even know what to study. You get to go home and go like, I know what I can study tonight. Like, receive from the hand of God the gifts he's given you and give thanks to him. And then, in obedience to his word, because you're grateful for his grace, because you're grateful for his mercy, obey him. Do the next right thing in accordance with the word of God that's directly in front of you. If your marriage is in a hard spot, things are tight financially, or you just, for who knows why, you're having a hard time getting along really well. Don't spend your time looking at, focusing on the apparent good marriage across the aisle in here today. No, but receive from the hand of God the husband that God has given you, the wife that God has given you. 
and in faithfulness to him, do the next right thing out of gratitude. Love your wife. Honor your husband. Seek for your marriage to grow. Nothing will poison a marriage more, and I've seen it, than imagining what other people's marriages are like. Single people in this room. Oh, it's so easy to become cynical and angry and bitter because you don't have what you thought you would have at this point. Maybe it's a family, maybe it's just a spouse. To be distracted from the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the kindnesses of God that he's given you right now and instead to become utterly preoccupied with and then undone by and poisoned by an obsession with what you do not have. Brothers and sisters, go to war with envy, with gratitude, with faith, with diligent, loving obedience, trusting in the goodness of the Lord. Not the goodness of the Lord to give you what someone else has, but the goodness of the Lord to give you mercy, to give you grace, to sustain you, to keep every single one of his promises. Envy will give way to bitterness and bitterness will destroy you and destroy everything around you. One last thing before we're done. There's this odd turn of phrase. If I'm honest, it was a disturbing turn of phrase when I first started looking at this text. It says here, I want to find the verse because I want you to see it because it's almost unbelievable, the language here. Oh, verse nine. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines. Here it is. To carry the good news. What is that? To carry the gospel of the death of Saul to the house of their idols, and to the people. They just beheaded a man and stripped off his armor. And then the text uses a phrase that should stand out to us. They went to proclaim good news. The good news of Saul's defeat and Israel's defeat. And in some sense, it is good news. This serpent has been defeated. This serpent has been killed. But it's also interesting that this isn't the end of Saul's story yet. The end of Saul's story is his life, his body is hung outside of a city. It's hung outside. Book of Deuteronomy tells us that this is a sign of God's curse, God's judgment, God's destruction on a person is when their bodies are hung the men of Jabesh Gilead, the first city that was ever rescued by Saul, 
back in 1 Samuel 11, they come and they redeem Saul and his sons. They take down their bodies and then they bury them. And they bury them at the foot of a tree, a tabernacle tree. And so this tabernacle tree, which um, um, is remembered in Samuel because of the place of, that was the place of Saul accusing his men of slandering David, of being um, consumed with paranoia and envy and bitterness and anger. There he's buried. But throughout the scriptures, trees are signs. They're, they're, they're ladders to the heavens. They're, they're bridges between where God is and man is. And so we find ourselves like Saul, and maybe this morning in particular with the sin of envy or the sin of bitterness or, or just the first three sins of just disobeying the words of God or being filled with pride or presumptuousness. Um, we find ourselves cursed, desperately needing redeeming by a valiant man, one who will take us to the foot of a tree, the only tree that leads to the very throne room of God, needing to be lain there because we too have become serpents. We too are constantly in danger of becoming the very dragon who is our enemy and we must be redeemed by another and brought to a tree, the cross. There we might be rescued from our own destruction, our own suicidal envy, our own suicidal bitterness, our own suicidal rejection of the words of God and the commands of God and the grace of God and the promises of God. And there be washed and there undragoned with Lewis's famous phrase. And there made men and women again, blessed with the spirit of God and the grace of God and the promises of God. Let's prepare for communion and pray.